In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dan. Hello, everyone. We will be discussing the infamous Karl Marx and his political pamphlet, The Communist Manifesto. Here's what we're going to cover on today's episode. First, a brief, very brief, don't worry, biography of Marx. Second, the socialist and anarchist thought before communism. The historical context at the time of publication, around 1848. A book review of The Communist Manifesto, and we'll spend a lot of time on that. Then, we'll follow that up with some major themes of the work. What exactly is communism? The impact of communism in a list of the countries, populations, and possible death counts. And then cultural Marxism. Is this a fact, or is it a fabrication? Finally, does communism have a future? Let's begin this diss track with a brief biography of Marx. Karl Marx was born in Prussia in 1818. He came from a rabbinical Jewish background, but technically his father converted to Christianity for career potential. After university, Marx became a radical journalist and married, producing three children who lived to adulthood and one illegitimate son. Prussia shut down the newspaper he was a part of, and he moved to Paris in 1843 to avoid persecution. He didn't write any major works at this time of his life. In 1845, he moved to Brussels, Belgium, where he wrote the Communist Manifesto and speculated on the nature of revolutions in 1848. Much of his other work fiercely attacked bigger fish in the intellectual scene, and this tone can be felt in the manifesto. His last exile was in London, uh, which was a haven for radicals like himself, ironic considering it was also the most advanced capitalist economy. He wrote the first volume of Das Kapital, when he was unable to finish it for uh, whatever reason, probably got distracted playing Minecraft and watching anime. He got further involved in political activism and wrote a few other minor works, but near the end of his life, his output was limited. He died in 1883 after many years of bad health, and his estate was only worth 250 pounds. Marx's life was characterized by political activism, scholarship, and financial troubles. We know that uh, the manifesto was co-authored by Friedrich Engels, But frankly, we don't care enough to give much of an account of his life. Y'all aren't here to listen to a biography of Marx anyway, let alone Engels. So let's move on. Let's move on to the socialist and anarchist thought before communism. Although communism is relatively new in the grand scope of things, its utopian vision is similar to other utopias conceived by thinkers long before Marx or Engels. We'll cover some of them. Plato suggested in The Republic that an ideal society would assign a different job to each person based on their natural aptitudes and interests. In this stratified system, philosopher kings, warriors, farmers, and peasants would all work in harmony. St. Thomas More penned the aptly titled Utopia in 1515, where he outlined a society guided by reason, without personal strife. He said this about the people of Utopia, Among them, there is no unequal distribution, so that no man is poor, none in necessity, And though no man has anything, yet they are all rich. For what can make a man so rich as to lead a serene and cheerful life, free from anxieties? Now let me make comments about this, because I actually just finished this work. 
it's it's difficult to even say if this was a piece of irony or just a piece of messing around with the um, intellectual scene of the day because St. Thomas, as we know now, St. Thomas More in the Catholic Church was a staunch promoter of, you know, Catholic traditional values. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff that he writes about in Utopia is antithetical to the Catholic faith, even at the time, such as um, allowing divorce and remarriage, you know, euthanasia, actually, really was a part of the society. And there's lots of other things, even though there are a lot of good aspects of Utopia that he writes about. They're all presented by someone whose character is not Thomas More, because Thomas More is a character in his book, but he's not the one who gives the account of this island of Utopia. Okay, so this may have been a little bit of trolling here. It's, it's possible. But there's also a lot of good features of the island. Hmm. But it must be noted, Utopia doesn't mean perfect place. It literally means no place. Because no perfect place exists on Earth, right? So it's like no place. Yeah, no and all the, all the names given to the places are kind of parodies like no water dumb people or you know stuff like that it's all over the place huh anyways francis bacon wrote about a potential lost civilization in his work new atlantis how could a society dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge and scientific discovery be anything but idyllic and then there is gerard winston lee who wrote of an egalitarian society with universal suffrage where equal distribution of work is strictly enforced by unpaid lawmen, and the whole system is governed by parliament. Details can be found in The Law of Freedom from 1652. There have been many socialist thinkers throughout history, but anarchism has been another school of thought in left-wing circles. Much of its modern synthesis came about after the French Revolution, when political theorists such as Pierre-Joseph Proudhon dismissed the state in favor of mutual cooperation. Proudhon is known as the father of anarchism, but it is debatable which side of the aisle he belonged to, actually. With the exception of anarcho-capitalism, anarchism has historically been associated with socialism. Anarchism reached its peak in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Anarchists did scores of bombings in America and assassinated President McKinley. They were a major faction on the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War. However, its use of terrorism and suppression by communists has made anarchism fringe. It is only held by a few ivory tower intellectuals, think Noam Chomsky, and edgy young people like yours truly. <laughs> yeah, Evan's so edgy. I used to be. Back in your libertarian phase? Yeah, your I was, I was ANCAP, definitely. For sure. Glad those days are behind us, right? Yes. <laughs> Let's dive into the historical context at the time of the publication of the manifesto. The revolutions of 1848 were a series of revolutions in Europe against the monarchs and for more liberalism. And by liberalism, we mean like universal suffrage, civil liberties, and other reforms. And nationalism was a big part of that. It started in Sicily and spread to all of Europe except Russia, Spain, and Scandinavia. Northern Europe had peaceful protests, which led to reforms. But democratic insurrection broke out in France, Austria, and Prussia. In France, this resulted in universal male suffrage and the Second Republic. Though a few years later, the leader declared himself emperor. Hungary almost became independent from Austria due to nationalist sentiment, but was finally subdued with Russian intervention. The uprisings among the German states failed miserably. The Irish also failed against the British. Though the revolutions were widespread, they were almost entirely crushed by the establishment. Liberals all throughout Europe suffered persecution and exile. It was disillusioning for the movement. The Communist Manifesto was originally published just before the revolutions broke out. As you'll see, 
in the preface. Engels speaks about the aftermath of the revolutions and how the communists were only getting started. Oh, how right he was. Let's finally dive into an in-depth book review of the Communist Manifesto. And I'll have you know I read this a month or two back, and I did take pretty detailed notes. So we do hope we cover everything of importance. Let's start with the preface. The manifesto was published before the revolutions of 1848, in secret, of course. The governments ruthlessly hunted the radicals down. The communists published tracts that were moderate enough to get them influence in all trade unions. Over time, they moved the unions further left. This manifesto has been translated into many languages and is the most international piece of socialist literature. However, in the late 1840s, socialism was a middle-class movement, and communism was a working-class movement. The communists have always asserted that the emancipation of the working class must be done by the working class. The communist proposition is that the mode of economic production is the basis of the political and intellectual history in any given time period, to quote the manifesto. The whole history of mankind has been a history of class struggles, contests between exploiting and exploited, ruling and oppressed classes. This struggle has been a constant uh, evolution. The proletariat can now emancipate society from all this oppression. They cannot do so by taking over existing structures. Part 1. Quote, A specter is haunting Europe. The specter of communism. Unquote. All powers are working to eradicate it. Communism is hurled as an insult. Communism is recognized as a power, and communists should openly publish their views. History is a series of class struggles. The modern capitalist system splits the people into two distinct groups, oppressor bourgeoisie and oppressed proletariat. The bourgeoisie, the capitalists, have been revolutionary in ending all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. Instead of a complex set of relationships between superiors and inferiors, now the relationship is simply naked self-interest, cash. All professions are wage laborers now. The bourgeoisie must go all over the globe for resources, tear apart unique cultures to make them cosmopolitan, make all nations dependent on others, make cities more powerful and the country less, and produce goods at previously unimaginable rates. The proletarian's work is soulless. Work is often forced upon women and children. When the worker gets paid, he is oppressed by the landlord and all other merchants. Tradesmen and shopkeepers will be swept aside by capitalism and become proletarians. With regards to the last little bit there about um, the laborers getting gypped and uh, by their landlords and things like that, um, that it's crazy how that talking point has remained after 150 years. You know, there's the whole cancel rent movement. And I can't believe that this is still going on. I mean, what, what would you have to say about that? That it's still, to this day, after this manifesto has existed for over 150 years, there's been so much time to disprove this. There's been so much time to attack this. And yet people still latch on to the idea of, oh, just because you charge money for renting a space, you're evil. I'm going to push back just a little bit. Sure. Because I... I think that if something keeps getting propagated like this over 150 years, there's probably some truth to it. I'm not going to say, of course, I'm not a, I'm not advocating what he's saying, but if you say something and it sticks for 150 years, there's got to be some truth to it. People don't just hold on to things that are so easily disproven for 150 years. Oh, I beg to differ. I think people can hold on to whatever makes them feel good, and it feels good to say, ooh, landlord, bad, free rent, good. 
And I think in, in Marx's day, it was just as true as it is today. There are people who want to get something for nothing. And it's always the, the landlord who's greedy for charging rent, but it's never, it's never the people paying rent, the uh, people renting who are greedy for wanting cheaper rent. So why is it always one way, not the other? That would be my criticism. You know, why is it always greed of the CEOs making money? But why is it never greed for the customers to want things for cheaper? That's certainly a good criticism. But I would say, like, one thing he said that I think was actually pretty true Mm -hmm. um, was the bourgeoisie must go all over the globe for resources, tear apart unique cultures to make them cosmopolitan and... um, I think that w- that's pretty true if you think about it, like this globalism that we speak of. All places are starting to look kind of the same. You go to different cities, everyone's got a McDonald's and uh, I don't know, whatever other huge chains are around. You're right. So it's it's kind of making everything duller and less unique. Because, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, th- I thought that was a good point. And also how anytime a country opens up, the capitalists just like swoop in to get make money off of these people that just liberalize their markets yes and it does create a a lot of like international sameness everywhere and i think we might get to this later on in the themes section but a running theme throughout the whole throughout the whole manifesto is that marx does touch on some very important issues like he he identifies legitimate problems However, his solutions, I think, are, are wrong and very, very wrong in many cases. But he does identify things that, yes, are big problems and we need to talk about them and find a workable solution for them because that is a problem. You know, mega corporations destroying unique cultures, that is a problem. And also in that same paragraph I just read, um, work is often forced upon women and children. I think that was definitely true back then. At the time, yes, yeah. it was. And saying that every everyone is um, a wage laborer now, I think that's pretty true too. Like there's hardly any independent craftsman who can make a living just doing that. Yes, and everybody, it's not a hobby. Everybody works for a soulless mega corporation. Everyone days. has a boss. You know, there's no like independent artisans anymore except some some hippies off, you know, in some some town somewhere. But Yeah, and they probably are communists, you know, so yeah. They, they probably have a job and then they do that as a hobby, mm-hmm. you know. You're right. It, so I think it, there's there's some truth to that. For sure. Continuing on with the summary of uh, the manifesto. The proletariat go through phases. At first, they rebel against new technology or non-industrial bourgeoisie. As they become more concentrated, they form unions and riot. Many of those who were formerly rich, middle class, tradesmen, nobility, will flock to radicalism as they get displaced by capitalists. History has been determined by the oppressive minority, The bourgeoisie must not be in charge anymore. The bourgeoisie is empowered by capital and the proletariat by labor. The bourgeoisie is digging its own grave. Communism is inevitable. And that's going to be a major theme we'll touch on later, that it's the historicity and the inevitability, like the scientific analysis of history. So Marx was saying that what what I'm telling you is not what you should do. It's what's going to happen no matter what. Yeah. Mm. History is just going to keep going like I'm predicting. It's predictable can't avoid it i will say about that uh just real quick i think he's he's kind of right in that pure free market capitalism does tend toward consolidation and monopolization to a certain extent i mean we can look back to the the quote gilded age which i think is overdone but i do think there's a lot of truth to it as well and that these like standard oil was 
operating in a monopolistic way. And that's how it goes. I mean, you can just buy out your, your competition when you're big enough. Of course. And shut them out and use different tactics to make it harder for them to survive. And in the end, even if you have competition, it's between like two or three huge corporations. So the number of people at the top gets smaller. And even in our modern day, after Sherman Antitrust or the Sherman Antitrust Act and Antitrust Laws, we are still seeing monopolies. The big well, tech monopolies are the biggest ones. And so those we should live in a world where those get broken up very easily, but we don't. Yeah, the Sherman Antitrust Act is still in you know, in the books. It is. But ever since like the Reagan era, it's been kind of being pushed aside for more free market solutions. And I think we're we're suffering from that and to an extent. Or also I think we so. we got more prosperity as a result. I'm not advocating like Carter type. No, of, yeah. But you know, we've seen since Reagan the downfall of unionization and a lot more consolidation of companies. Okay, that ends part one, and I will give my personal opinion. Part two is where he starts to get a little unhinged. Uh, the part one was kind of uh, tame, I think, but when he gets in part two, it gets it starts getting vicious. You can see his true self. So part two. Communists and proletarians have identical goals. Communists do not oppose other working class parties, but promote the interests of the entire proletariat instead of nationalism. They are the most focused and tend to lead for that fact. Proletariat power is the goal. Let's abolish private property. In other words, bourgeois property. Capitalism is already destroying the property of the proletariat. Bourgeois property is only created by exploiting workers and is based on the antagonism of capital and wage labor. The average wage is only enough to have the workers survive. No more. Let's abolish individuality, independence, and freedom as meant by the bourgeoisie. No buying and selling without permission. The bourgeois only want private property because they have it. And they only have it because 90% of people don't own property. Communism won't produce widespread laziness because the poor do work and barely survive now, while the rich thrive without hard work. These bourgeois ideals of freedom are just shaped by their environments of being the oppressor. I think we're starting to get into the nitty-gritty of his philosophy. Like You actually hear these points watered down a little bit in modern discourse in America. The exploitation of workers. like That's the only way to produce profit is by exploiting people. Yeah, like you, there's no possible way that we could actually be treating them fairly and still make a profit. If yeah. you're making a profit, you have to be exploiting them somehow, some way, and I will find out how. And if you have land, it's only because other people don't have land. And you I mean, stole it from them. Yeah. There's a lot of land, you know. Yeah. The, I don't think that's the problem. There's enough land to go around in America, at least. Let's abolish the family. The bourgeois family is based on private gain. Communists will stop parental exploitation of children. That's how he phrases it. They will replace home education with proletariat education. The bourgeoisie tear apart proletariat families and treat them like machines. But then they complain about the communist ideas for the family. Communists are accused of wanting all women to be prostitutes. But prostitution predates communism, and the bourgeois men use them all the time and commit adultery with other men's wives, almost as a game, as Marx says. Bourgeois marriage is in reality wives in common. All I gotta say is sex work is real work. <laughs> What's funny is that he says this, but modern modern day communists a lot are like all about women being prostitutes and sex workers. Well, he's not against porn it. stars. Uh, yeah, but it sounds like he's saying that um, you know communists are accused 
uh, of wanting all women to be prostitutes. Oh, he and he's saying, oh, but we don't. They're accusing no, us of that, but we don't. No, actually. he doesn't actually deny it. If you look at it, he just says they were accused of doing this, and then he deflects. Oh, That's, okay. He keeps doing Perhaps. this, by the way. I'll, I'll point it out in the next section, but he's saying that we're we're accused of you know wanting to ruin rich families, but you're already ruining our families. Deflection. Mm. Okay. Accused of wanting all women to be prostitutes, but prostitution's been around before us, um, and Fair you're, enough. you're already using prostitutes, so like whatever. You don't even believe in what you're saying. Uh, one thing I, I will say, though, is for sure is this is where you kind of see the seeds being planted of this is how we're going to make the revolution happen. We are going to attack the family. We are going to attack education. And those attacks are still going on today. So keep that in mind because we will talk about that later. But those for sure are ways in which you can help the revolution speed up. Yeah. And also in how how bourgeois marriage is really just like wives in common. I think he's kind of pushing the Victorian trope of of men just not being loyal and women just being at home good housewives but men can't control themselves. I don't know how true it was. Probably Maybe for some the truth. rich. Some truth, I'm sure. Yeah. Next, workers have no country because they have no political power. So yes, communists seek to abolish countries and nationalism. As class antagonisms vanish, so will wars between nations. It'll be world peace. It'll be great. Incredible. Religious, philosophical, and ideological arguments against communism are not worth considering because opinions of the ruling class are biased. Another deflection. Huge deflection. Opponents say that ideas have changed throughout history, but communists, by seeking to abolish eternal truths like religion, morality, etc., act in contradiction to history. But all history is of class antagonism, so that can be just ignored. Wow, another great deflection. <laughs> yeah, incredible. He's basically saying these people have arguments against us, but they're biased because they're rich. I'm like, okay, that's <laughs> so. That's I'm not like, going to bother talking about that's this. like a definition of logical fallacy. It's the uh, genetic fallacy. Yes, it's saying this person said this, so it's not true. But is it true? Yes, on its own merits, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, come on. I'm sure. I'm sure. Like a proletarian could have said this too. You know, would it? I agree. It's such and it's such bad reason. <laughs> it is. It, it truly is. Uh, and that is another major theme that will <laughs> thread all the way through this work. Uh, lastly, um, he makes the point: communism will be achieved with injustice and chaos, but it's worth it. So he's not saying it'll be completely peaceful, totally great. Yeah, you'll have to violently overthrow the bourgeoisie, but. In the end, it'll be all worth it because it'll be world peace, kumbaya, and everyone will get to share in the glory. For the record, I did write this uh, summary as unbiased of a way as I could. I'm not trying to portray him as more evil than he is. I'm literally saying what he said. Yes. I mean, I've read it, and I would agree with your assessment here that that's basically what he is saying. Yeah. I'm not trying to make him look worse than he already does. Okay. So here's his 10 points. In advanced countries, here's what communism sets to do. 1. Abolish property and land. 2. Heavy progressive income tax. 3. Abolish inheritance. 4. Confiscate all property of immigrants and rebels against communism, people who leave for their own reasons. 5. State-centered credit through national bank and no private banks. 6. Communication and transportation nationalization by the state. Seven, more factories in production in hands of the state. 
cultivate wastelands and improve the soil. 8. Everyone has to work, and let's create industrial armies, especially in agriculture. 9. Combine agriculture and manufacturing, gradually making town and country indistinguishable. 10. Free public education. Abolish child labor. Train kids to be factory workers. Now, if I may, I'd like to go back through these real quick and see how many we can check off and, and see if we can remember just within the, like the last election cycle that these were talking points. So, I mean, a lot of them are already in the law. Yeah, yeah. I knew you were going to bring this up. Exactly. So. so number one, abolish property in land. So abolishing land, that is not quite here. No. However, the heavy progressive income tax, number two, obviously has been here for almost a century. You know, in the 50s under Republican President Eisenhower, the top rate was above 90% mm-hmm. for income tax. Number three, abolish inheritance. We heard, um, I believe that was Elizabeth Warren talking about that. And this is this was like a mainstream Democratic candidate in 2020. I mean, I'll just point out real quick, it's so easy to get past this. You just give away your stuff before you die. I guess, but then couldn't you just tax the inheritance? Like any money you get from relatives, you could, they could just tax you if you're the recipient. It's not, an, it's not inheritance if it's if you're still alive. It's a gift. They'll You'd have to do gifts. a gift tax. Yeah. I think there might actually be a gift tax, mm-hmm. but it's much lower than the estate tax. Well, you're right. Uh, confiscate property of immigrants and rebels against communism. We don't have that. But we do have sometimes harsh penalties for people who oppose the narrative, especially these days, you know. It's not quite the seizure of property yet, but it is a limitation of their rights or limitation of their speech or, or deplatforming or doxing. And many of these are not examples of state-sanctioned activities yet, but we could be there within, within a decade or two, I think. Then there's state-centered credit through national bank, no private banks. Well, we still have private banks, but we do have a pretty strong national bank. And uh, some might say that that's a problem. <laughs> I don't know what your opinion of that would be. <laughs> uh, number six, communication and transportation nationalized by the state. Transportation, not really. Yeah, it used to be a lot more, and actually a lot of them, a lot of like the trains and stuff have been sold to private entities. So that one is actually a reversal, not, not as much. True, but anymore. we do have a FCC. Yeah, it regulates. Regulates communication. More factories and production in hands of the state, cultivate wastelands and improve soil. We have a big... Uh, well, the federal government owns actually a big portion of the country. Yes. A lot of which is not quite wasteland, but it's protected protected land. That's just wild. Yes. I'd say that's half true. Okay. Uh, everyone has to work, create industrial armies. Uh, we have the opposite problem. We're trying to pay people to stay home, UBI. So I don't know what's worse, forcing people to work or forcing people to stay home and giving them a check. Number nine, combine agriculture and manufacturing, gradually make town and country indistinguishable. I think what we've done more of is, is ramp up the urbanization, like take urban centers and make them into ultra urban centers uh, with this whole idea of like being a pod person. You know, you will own nothing and you will be happy and you will love it. So this idea of, of creating a completely dependent urbanite is definitely a big one. And then lastly, free public education, abolish child labor, and train kids to be factory workers. That's a pretty outdated view because they never could have foreseen the technological progression in the digital age. However, the free public education is a big one. You know, cancel student debt. Uh, Bernie Sanders is all over that. 
And child labor is not an issue. We've already done away with that. But training kids to be international citizens, global citizens, that's, I think, what has replaced the idea of training them to be factory workers. And uh, political power is merely class warfare of one class over another. So the state will no longer be necessary eventually. Sweep away the bourgeoisie revolution. So his goal was to do all these things, these 10 points, and then once you do that, you won't need the state? That's well, what he's saying? after a little bit after. Uh, once it's firmly established, I see. then it won't, there won't be a need for it because there won't be classes. And the only purpose of the state, in his view, was to, to initiate class warfare. So uh-huh. if there's no class warfare, there's no state. Interesting. This is why I say ANCAPs and communists are literally the same. I'll get triggered. People, people uh, triggered by that. Don't say that. Uh, they are. Part three. Aristocratic reactionaries decry capitalism for the wrong reasons and have not adapted to the realities of modern society. Those in guilds and small businessmen will be swept aside by the bourgeois, but they only want restoration of medieval Europe. Reformers of many stripes seek to improve the conditions of the poor, but they only do so to maintain the current order. Utopian leftist thinkers paved the way for communism, but they sought to reconcile classes rather than have the proletariat seize power and abolish classes, right? Yeah, how terrible. They're trying to do it peacefully, you know, trying to work through the system and make, I don't know, make it to where heads don't roll. Yeah, make like gradual just, changes. Like the UK did to a certain extent in reality. Instead of having a revolution, it was just slowly granting these privileges and, you know, whatever to the poor people. Finally, part four. The communists support any movement that opposes the bourgeoisie, but they reserve the right to take control of leftist movements. And they did. They seek to unite all proletariat movements under their cause. And quote. This is the end. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of the world, unite! Let's discuss some major themes of the Communist Manifesto. First up is class warfare and anti-capitalism. History is a cycle of class conflict, according to Marx. Until the bourgeoisie are overthrown and we move into a communist system, the ruling and rich class will oppress the rest. The proletariat will fight back some, but this will normally lead to failure or temporary gains because of a lack of organization. Secondly, the oppressor versus the victim mindset. History can be boiled down to a struggle between oppressors and oppressed. It's that simple. This applies to every relationship. Employer versus employee, priest versus layman, husband versus wife, parent versus child, etc. Critical theory, pretty much. Then there's the anti-nationalism and anti-imperialism. There is no difference between the proletariat and different nations. Nationalism is a tool of the bourgeoisie to control the proletariat and keep them divided. 
Imperialism is a strategy by oppressor nations to keep the proletariat in line in other places and to steal from them. Then we have the theme of atheism and anti-theism. According to Marx, God doesn't exist, and religion is the, quote, opium of the masses, unquote. Religion is a part of the establishment, which enslaves the oppressed. Then there's the violent revolution over gradualism, which I think we mentioned earlier. Gradualism only gives the oppressors a chance to fight back and get good terms. The system is inherently corrupt and needs to be dismantled. There's no playing around with these people. The system was created to help the rich. And then infiltration and deception. Marx openly advocates lying to unions and more moderate leftist groups in order to be allowed access to them. Then you can make them more radical over time until you're powerful enough to expel the moderates. This happened over and over again. And it even happened in the American Democratic Party. Well, I didn't go there. But even in the early 1900s in America, there were socialist parties that were well-meaning. But then like the, the Marxists and the Leninists show up and they're like, oh, we're just a, we're just one part of the socialist movement. You should let us in to have a voice. And then before long, they take power, seize power like they did in Russia, even though they were a small percentage of the population. They just go in there and take control yeah. until they're their majority. You were right. Then there's the idea that the ends justify the means. Quote, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, end quote. That was Lenin. This idea is straight from the manifesto. The violent revolution will produce some injustice, but it's okay because the ends are great. Anti-individualism. Marx repeatedly denounces bourgeois idea like, quote, freedom and, quote, private property. He says that these ideas are used to oppress the proletariat. History is a type of science, and uh, Marx thought that communism was inevitable. Capitalism inevitably leads to diminishing capitalists as the capitalists compete with each other for dominance. Once they are small enough and, concurrently, the proletariat are massive in number, they will be easy to overthrow. Capitalism is according to him, self-destructive. An anti-nuclear family. The nuclear family is a bourgeois tool to indoctrinate and abuse children. The bourgeoisie force women and children to work in their factories. Why not ruin their kids too? And here's what I don't get is, I know it's all a power play and you have to paint the enemy as evil, but how exactly is the nuclear family uh, abusive to children? How is it that... By abuse, he means not training them to be communists. Oh, that's, I see. That's like the code word. Like you're training them in religion and, you know, like these bourgeois values of like responsibility and, and things that will make them successful in life. <laughs> yeah, that's a tool of, of uh, bourgeoisie supremacy. You need to train them in communism. I see. From that perspective, he's right, I guess. But his perspective is terrible. Another unintentional theme is uh, the evil bourgeoisie has created the modern world and everything in it. The manifesto frequently references all the advances made by this supposed boogeyman, the bourgeoisie, yet never recognizes the irony. Here's a direct quote from the first chapter. The bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all nations, even the most barbarian, into civilization. Oh, how terrible. How awful that it draws nations into civilization. It sounds like these, these bourgeoisie guys are actually pretty good. Like, they've been a benefit to society, so why criticize them? Oh, wait, you're only doing it because you're lazy and you want a revolution and okay, let's, let's you not don't want to earn your let's, keep. Let's be charitable now. We gotta. We can't be psycho, psychoanalyzing this, this creep, okay? Hmm. Uh, 
creep. I agree with that. I agree with the use of the word creep. Was he he halfway like raped his uh, sister, brother, cousin? No, mom, dad. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the person who kept the house up. When, when oh, his maid. Yeah, Mark said uh, arguably raped his maid when he just started his family out, and that's where the illegitimate child came from. It's oh. widely believed to be Mark's child. Whether it was consensual or not is another question. But he definitely did father a child out of wedlock. Yeah. I'm not going to call him a rapist just because I don't like his philosophy. I mean, I'll call him a creep and I'll call him a loser because I don't like his philosophy, but not a rapist. But when a maid is below him in the hierarchy and he's taking advantage of her position to satisfy his urges. By his own philosophy. I mean, he was the oppressor. He's the oppressor in that relationship. (laughs) But I'm sure it's different in his case. Oh, yeah. And so I said, it's indeed ironic because Marx conceded that the world had been shaped by capitalism. He lampooned those who want to return to a pre-industrial world because he saw the process as inevitable and irreversible. Also, his contention with capitalism was not its ability to create wealth so much, but the disparity also with which that wealth was allocated. Capitalism makes the poor poorer and the rich richer. Come on, man. I will only say one thing to counter that. I will paraphrase jordan peterson when he said all systems all economic systems create inequality capitalism is the only system that also creates wealth while creating inequality everything else just creates inequality so let's move on to communism what is it what exactly is this thing there are many different definitions of communism but according to merriam webster the essential meaning is this a way of organizing a society in which the government owns the things that are used to make and transport products, such as land, oil, factories, ships, etc. And there is no privately owned property. It can also mean a final stage of society, in Marxist theory, in which the state has withered away and economic goods are distributed equally. The difference between communism and socialism is that socialism advocates social control over private property and income distribution instead of the outright abolition of both. This would mean... For example, progressive taxation, welfare programs, regulations, and other such state programs to intervene in the economy and social atmosphere of a country. So rather than seizing the entirety of the means of production and creating a classless society, socialism is almost like communism light. Like you're just, it's the initial steps of controlling, regulating, and taxing, you would say. Yeah, to change, to like fix capitalism a little bit in their eyes. I see. Now, let's let's ask this. Is communist a slur, much in the same way Nazi is? I think there was a time when it was. If you go back to the days of the Red Scare with uh, McCarthyism, that was Senator Joseph McCarthy trying to hunt down who you know, people who he believed were communist infiltrators in Many the 50s. Many of them were. Many of them were. And some might say that his ideas were not so radical as they seemed at the time. Uh, back then, communist used to be a bigger slur, definitely, than it is today. Now, Nazi today is a bigger slur because it is used of it is used and approved of by more powerful groups uh, these days. Therefore, it has more backing. You know, mega corporations, politicians, academics—they tolerate that use of that language. Um, plus, Hollywood and the media—they're all sympathetic to use of the word Nazi and and calling people they don't agree with Nazis. Everyone I don't like is Hitler. Uh, plus, some people actually want to be called communists. They identify with communism, and they think it's a cool philosophy, so they're using it as a slur for them. That's actually doesn't work. It's a compliment to them. 
but nobody these days wants to be called a Nazi. Hardly anybody prominent will admit to being a communist. Yes, but they won't shy away from saying good things about communists, like all the things that Bernie Sanders said about, uh, who was it in Cuba? Fidel Castro. Yes. So, yeah, you're right. There's there's nobody out there who's saying, oh man, Hitler was great. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Himmler, what a cool guy. Goebbels, oh man, my role model. He did a few good things. (laughs) That's what they'll say. it's, It's this apologetics for the communist people, I mean. Exactly. I don't know why you're standing up for Fidel Castro. Literally every leader does some good when they're in power. You know, Hitler fixed the economy way faster than Roosevelt did. I'm yeah, serious. he did some good for some people. Yes. Now it started, came at the started of Volks, others. Yeah, started Volkswagen. <laughs> for all you Euros out there, Volkswagen is the Hitler car. Exactly. So if, if you limit your perspective and you just narrow it down, yeah, you can find some good that anyone has done. But yeah, when you look at the big picture, obviously you have to ask yourself, does the good outweigh the bad? And when it comes to communists, the good never outweighs the bad. It's always more death, more taxes, more misery. And and to for a prominent politician like Bernie Sanders and others to say, hey, that guy was good. Thumbs up to that guy. Mm, that, That doesn't cut it for me. I agree. Please go to episode 10, where we go through each type of communism in detail, such as Leninism and Maoism. Let's go to the impact of communism. Most notably, the Soviet Union, including the Eastern Bloc, China, Cuba, Greece, North Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Yugoslavia, Grenada, and a whole host of African nations have been communists at some point. I counted 50 countries on Wikipedia. It would have taken me a ton of time to estimate how many people have lived under a communist regime at some point, but we must say that it is in the billions. Even just from China alone, obviously, it's been in the billions. Yes. Though exact figures are hard to come by, somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died as a result of communism. It depends on how you classify the deaths. Does a famine which was caused by state mismanagement count? What if it was arguably directed at a group of people like the Holodomor? Regardless, you get the point. Communists are always a violent bunch that kill their political opponents and cause many other casualties from mismanagement. There are great resources out there, including many first-hand accounts like the Gulag Archipelago, that help us understand the true extent of the evil that communism promulgated. Gulag Archipelago is a, a, a favorite of ours at the Sons of Antiquity podcast. Definitely check that one out. Great read. And by great, I don't mean happy ending. <laughs> I don't mean it'll make you feel good but it is very informative. Let me ask you this. Cultural Marxism, is it fact or fiction? Now, this is an issue that is dear to my heart, so buckle in, because you're in for a ride. The term cultural Marxism is a popular buzzword in modern political discourse, almost exclusively on the right or within more conservative circles. It carries a negative connotation and is used to characterize the opposition as radical and progressive. As someone who wishes to change the status quo for the worse and move the country in a direction of communism, or at least socialism. But is this characterization accurate? Let's consult the paragon of wisdom and historical accuracy, knowyourmeme.com. And I quote, The term cultural Marxism is believed to have been coined by American sociology professor Trent Schroyer in his 1973 work, The Critique of Domination, The Origins and Development of Critical Theory in which the author identifies the Frankfurt School's critical theory, a school of thought focusing on reflective assessment and cultural critique through application of social sciences, 
as the origin of a culture industry, he calls it, that imposes socially unnecessary constraints of human freedom and ultimately the social domination of the individual. The article continues, In the following decade, Schroer's critique of the Frankfurt School as the origin of post-war liberal agendas and destruction of individualism was further expounded upon by other mainstream academics, most notably Richard Wiener's Cultural Marxism and Political Sociology from 1981 and Michael Minesino's New Dark Age, Frankfurt School and Political Correctness from 1992. So academics have been writing about this for a while. But is this idea really based on the philosophy of Marx and Engels as detailed in the manifesto? Short answer, yeah. Here's why. Marx argued that the bourgeoisie must be overthrown by the proletariat and a more equal society must be established. In order to accomplish this, the manifesto advocates for the abolishment of the nuclear family, the restructuring of education, the elimination of individualism in all forms, the elimination of private property, and maybe most importantly, the elimination of religion altogether. In short, if you want to drastically change the political and economic landscape, you have to change the culture first, as culture is the foundation which determines the political and economic systems of all groups. An example of European Christian culture, which lends itself to democracy and republicanism and freer markets found in Europe, America, and Canada, whereas Arab and Islamic culture through the, throughout the Middle East lends itself to theocracy, smaller, more controlled markets, and general instability. That's a point of that's a point of debate, but it can be safe for another time. We could talk about Saudi Arabia and, and all the oil money. I think that's an outlier. I think in general... In the modern sense, I think you're right, but like going back, I think the roles might be reversed. Perhaps. And there are some historical examples of cultural Marxism at work. In Russia, the Bolsheviks were hell-bent on removing Christianity from the Soviet Union. And Why? Because religion could lead them to hate the revolution and favor a return to monarchy, and it would distract them from fully embracing the new order. And in China, free speech, free press, and peaceful protests were squashed. Remember Tiananmen Square? Pepperidge Farm remembers, but the Chinese don't. They weren't allowed to remember and still aren't to this day. Public spaces were filled with statues and pictures of Mao to make the culture revolve around the dear leader and nothing else. Wherever and whenever communism has spread, cultural changes have preceded it. Now, the fact that the Western world is going through major changes is pretty indisputable. Violence in the streets, racial division, Pride Month, Occupy Wall Street, safe spaces, anti-white propaganda, media censorship, identity politics. We see it on the news. We can read about it. As Ron Paul once said, it's happening. But here's where we have to distinguish between a cooperative effort and an independent effort. If cultural Marxism is a cooperative effort, that means there are people, groups, corporations, and political entities actively working together to change the culture. They have the same goal, full-blown communism, and they are communicating with each other, working in unison to accomplish that goal. If cultural Marxism is an independent effort, that means that these same people, groups, corporations, and political entities are working towards similar but not identical goals, short-term or long-term, local or national or international, varying degrees of collectivism, etc., and are working independently to accomplish them. Those who call cultural Marxism a conspiracy theory, which is a lot of people in the mainstream media, tend to frame it as a vast cooperative effort, as if those who believe that cultural Marxism is real believe that the lowliest Antifa thug and the richest big tech CEO are all working together, like Spectre from James Bond, to reestablish the Soviet Union. 
This is probably not what most people believe and not an accurate picture of what's really happening. If cultural Marxism is happening, it has a few different levels. One, the aforementioned Antifa thugs and Reddit page moderators who support communism and progressive talking points because they're bums with no prospects who want a stimmy check every month. Then, in the tier above them is the middle class bleeding heart liberals who vote for progressive candidates and policies. They support BLM, they're okay with drag queen story hour, LGBT causes, open borders, environmentalism, etc. And they believe the government should do more to promote these things. Above that, you have influential business owners, local political leaders, community leaders and organizers, activists, and journalists. Same, same progressive politics, but they have a larger voice. They sway those below them toward these causes. And then fourth, you have state and federal political leaders and big business. They support progressive policies to appease the loudest and most, most disruptive among us, which is progressives, obviously. They're mostly in it for power and money. And fifth, on top, you have big tech and the ultra-wealthy like Soros and Zuckerberg types. They want to shape the world in their own image. If you don't believe me on that, Zuckerberg, yeah, I think you even told me this, uh, makes his hair cut look like Augustus because he believes that he is like some sort of god king guy. I mean, he believes that he's creating the metaverse. He can't can't really quite take over the world, yeah, so he's, he's making so, his own world to be because king Because he's of. so unlikable. Well, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. The bottom three groups are mostly working independently. They wish to change the culture for various reasons, to get free college maybe, or free rent, or money for them programs. That's minorities, Antifa, the poor. They belong to that group. Or they're trying to soothe their rich white guilt and help the poor disadvantaged uh, people. That's the middle class who's thinking like that. Or they're trying to satisfy their savior complex or get ahead in their careers. That's the journos or the pastor shepherd types. That's an obscure reference I won't get into, but you know the type. The top two groups are probably working together in some capacity or another. The higher you go, the more corruption you'll find. Since communism, Marxism, results in the centralization of power, it only makes sense that the richest and most powerful among us would promote cultural Marxism in order to change that political landscape to suit their needs, placing them at the top of a new hierarchy. For the most part, things like taking Christ out of schools, promoting LGBTQ plus causes, advocating for abortion, local mask mandates, critical race theory, and feminism have been the result of independent efforts. We'll, we will admit there was no single person or evil organization that orchestrated all of these progressive policies. But if you don't think that there are people in high places that stand to gain a ton of money and power from these cultural shifts, you're fooling yourself. So... Here's the big question. Does communism even have a future? There are only four countries which remain officially communist. China, Cuba, Laos, and Vietnam. All of these have implemented reforms to open up their markets some. Weirdly enough, North Korea dropped its communist stance in 2009, yet in practice remains the most communist country in the world today. It appears that all Soviet-era Second World countries have slowly abandoned communism. On the surface, it appears that communism is a relic of past ages. In the West, however, acceptance of communism has become more mainstream, though the philosophy itself has been present in academia, media, and big business for decades. Let me say, the real problem with communism is that it has never really been tried. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem, for sure. All joking aside, communism actually doesn't work. It can't work. It is inevitable that it, as a system, will collapse or evolve into something that can't survive. If the West 
does suffer from economic state control and or repression of civil liberties. It won't be branded as communist most likely, but maybe some kind of democratic socialist or something like that. The continued rise of socialism in the economic sphere is likely, as it has engulfed Europe and seems to avoid implosion over there for now. Former communist countries sometimes hold on to a nostalgia for the good old days, especially Russia. The Communist Party is the second largest political party in Russia today, behind the behemoth that is Putin's United Russia. In 2018, Putin famously dominated with over 77% of the vote, but the communist candidate got almost 12% second place. And similarly, previous elections saw the communist presidential candidate get second place, in respectively going back in time 17%, 18%, 14%, 30%, and 41%, all of which were second place, as I said. This 41% is extremely impressive, way that better was, than... That was the first free election. Yeah. So you can expect that. It's been slowly going down. As you can see, pretty much it's been going down every election season. Yeah. People were just like, didn't want change, you know. They want what was there. Well, they've certainly done way better than the libertarians ever have. It's sad. It's sad when uh, <laughs> sad when communist parties do better than libertarian parties. Am I yeah. right? Now there are similar circumstances in other former communist countries. This is why we should be thankful for Putin. He is keeping the communists from taking over again, at the very least. I think at the very, very, very least. I think you know we'll say that much. We won't say any more on that for fear of wading into deep waters trying to. Uh, say whether Putin is good or bad. <laughs> We're going to avoid that for now. As noted poet Dwayne Carter Jr. once said, prepared for the worst, but still praying for the best. It's impossible to predict the future, but we need to do what we can to prevent communism from happening. Our children will thank us, or they may curse us for maintaining oppressive patriarchal capitalism. We'll just have to see. <laughs> Bigot. <laughs> now it's time for the takeaways. Karl Marx was a bad dude, even worse than Corn Pop. <laughs> the Communist Manifesto is a highly influential book, and mature, well-grounded adults should read it, but not younger. No, not young kids. Though often portrayed as a relic of the Cold War, the basic ideas behind communism are embraced by a large portion of Americans and Europeans. Communism has left a bloody stain on history. Here are our lingering questions. Besides political repression, what can be done to prevent far-left movements from becoming a threat to Western democracies? You know, I think a big part of it, we can, we can give the typical libertarian answer, education. Okay, I disagree, actually. That, that may be number two, but number one is eliminating the circumstances that make people desperate enough to embrace far-left socialism or communism i agree like if they're destitute on this if a majority of people are destitute on the streets and you live in a democracy they're gonna vote to get more stuff yes because they're destitute i mean they, they shouldn't be like begging for food or on the brink of starvation you know so if you do if you go the teddy roosevelt way and kind of appease the far left and give them some of what they want and alleviate the suffering of the poor or at least a big portion of the poor, then you're going to keep a lot of them from embracing radicalism. 
I think that's a good plan. And I think, like they say, change begins locally. So what, ask yourself, what can you do? What can you in your community do to help people who may turn to that? Let's provide them a community. Let's help people go to church and feel like they belong. Let's that's a, that's have strong families. Thing. That's another thing, strong religious belief. That well, That's a good buffer against communism. If you have a bunch of heathens that never been to church, they might be easier prey. Agreed. So be a good influence on your friends who may be in times of trouble. Not only just to be a good friend, but also because you don't want them to become a communist. I mean, let's just be honest. No one wants their friends <laughs> to become communists, okay? Which of the 10 points, if any, do you agree with? I would say I agree with the idea that everyone should work, not that we should create armies of factory workers, but the general idea of everyone needs to have a job. Everyone needs to have something they're doing. I think that's a good idea. Every man, at least. Not Not like women with children. No, but they should have tasks. Let's talk about children. You know, children should have chores. They should learn about work and they should be helping out, you know, and contributing to the household. And obviously the ideal place for the wife and the mother is to be taking care of the children. But if she's got a little side hustle, good. She needs something to keep her busy, keep her off the streets, right? (laughs) Keep her out of trouble. But no, in all seriousness, you know, uh, something to keep her busy when she's not dealing with the kids or they're at school or something. Any others? Uh, I bet you agree some with 10. Uh, I don't believe in free public education. You know, you need to pay your way. But abolishing child labor, yes. I think that's good that we pass those laws to prevent factory workers from employing small children to crawl inside machines. I think that's a good thing. So I would agree with that. What about you? I think I think free primary public education is a, it's a common good kind of thing. Like K through 12? Yeah. I think it, I mean, if done well, in theory, it's a good thing. In theory. And abolishing child labor, obviously. As far as education, I think if you keep it local and state, you're definitely way better off. That could still be, you know, free public education. I'm not saying it has to be DOE. I'm not saying that Yeah, no, we need to get rid of that. Like, we need to. Federal Department of Education, get that out of here. I think. Yeah, state, state run. It could be better. And I know, I know public education is really bad. But for those who can't afford it, which would be most people, most people can't afford a private school education for all their kids. It would, I think it's a good thing to have a large portion of Americans educated. And it keeps a lot of, you know, I put educated in scare quotes, but if a lot of Americans, like say all Americans were brought up with some degree of education, it would be beneficial to maintaining our republic. Of course. Should people read the manifesto, or should we just throw it in public bonfires? Evan, what do you think? You know, I think we should bring back the Forbidden Books Index, like the church used to have. Yeah? You know, if you're a scholar, you get permission from the guy who runs a library to read it, like, for scholarly reasons. That's that's good. But we shouldn't be giving this to our kids to read. I wouldn't probably go as far as what you just said with the whole <laughs> uh, restricted section. It reminds me of Harry Potter a little bit. But I would say... Yeah, don't give it to kids. You know, you got to have a, a certain foundation, I think, of understanding, especially, you know, an understanding of our culture, of American culture, of freedom, before you read something like that. Yeah, you got to be mature enough because it's a very forceful book and it makes a lot of very strong conclusions. If you don't know what you're talking about, you can easily fall prey to it. 
Yeah, and say, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, we should rise up against these people who have so much more than me, richer. They're the bourgeoisie. Yes, it's very easy to get carried away and emotional about it. And if there's one thing you need to do in, in when it comes to serious topics like this is come at it from a dispassionate point of view. That's the only way you're going to make it through because otherwise you'll get swept up in the emotions and caught up. You don't want your your college-age kid to become a radical. You don't. It's just not a good look. Yeah, and it happens too much. Finally, why is Marxism often so appealing to young people? Because they have, in the modern world, so few ways of belonging. This makes them feel like a worker of the world. This makes them feel like, hey, I'm fighting for something. They have so little to really, truly fight for these days. So I, I think it appeals to them just from a very basic human belonging um, that's what that's that's the way it's where it's coming to the way it's calling out to them. Like, hey, I can belong to a big epic fight. It's certainly almost a replacement for religious fervor and belonging. You're right. There is a big sense of community and purpose, especially purpose. If purpose. you're a communist, it just tells you exactly what you need to do, and you can just keep fighting for it. It'll never get there. So you can keep fighting. You'll always have something to fight for. Astute observation there. Because it'll never work. <laughs> so you'll always be fighting. <laughs> oh, it'll work this time, I promise. We, it really hasn't been tried. Anything else? I think that is all I have to add. Please make sure to like and subscribe. But even more importantly, leave us comments. What are your opinions? Did we make mistakes? And feel free to roast Dan, too, while you're at it. Please do. I welcome it. Spread the love. That's all for today's show. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom.